when we look back, I don't think, I mean, across over $100 million in ad spend, I don't think we ever lost more in total than maybe 200,000 bucks. What are the most important areas in the business that you need to be world-class in, first and foremost, so that the people you're putting in the company really are helping you to be world-class in those areas? Because you don't have to be great at everything. What do you need to be great at to help the company move forward in your particular role? It just comes down to mapping it back to what creates the greatest value. I mean, if you're working on the business instead of in it, then the, the on stuff is going to be a super high value. Uh, but you have to be really clear when you're doing $10 an hour work or $100 an hour work or whatever it is. You just need to be clear that that's what it is. If, if you're not aware of it, then you're probably doing it. We stand today. The Business Method the business with method. a shout The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring high-performing entrepreneurs and high-caliber people dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built seven-figure businesses that can be ran anywhere in the world. And currently, we are interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business, affect income, results, economies, and cultures, especially post-COVID. Since we moved into a post-pandemic world, the landscape has changed drastically for most business owners. We're finding out what is working for the entrepreneurs out there that have positioned themselves well to make sure their businesses thrive, succeed, and continue to experience growth in this current economy. And now... Let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. Hey, gals and pals, listen up real quick because we have something exciting to share with you. First, for you high-performing entrepreneurs out there, we've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 episodes that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just two to eight minutes long. These high-performance episodes are being published on Monday and Friday each week and will be labeled as HP number 1234567891010 and so on. Those episodes are live now and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content when you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered to you as soon as they are live. The next thing I wanted to share with you is about our private mastermind community for established entrepreneurs. If you have an established business that has good momentum and wanted to be involved in a higher level mastermind community that is curated specifically for entrepreneurs that are moving at the same speed as you with similar challenges, revenue, team size, and business niche, then we've got a group for you. Our private mastermind groups are facilitated by myself, yours truly, and my good friend, Adam Anderson. Adam is a seasoned entrepreneur who's been involved in 20 plus startups over 20 years and recently had a multi-million dollar exit. I keep the members on track with their goals, productivity, and optimization, and Adam brings the vast business knowledge to the groups. Our purpose with this private community is to help you reach your business goals faster so you can remove yourself from your company and focus on bigger and better things. You can learn more about that private community and masterminds at thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. That's thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. And now let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. Dan Reutemann is the founder of Stroll, an e-commerce platform company that specialized in marketing education products. Through Stroll, Dan turned Pimsleur into the second largest language learning platform in the U.S. and close to a $100 million product line. For seven years in a row, his company that he started in his college dorm room was on the Inc. 5000 list, the Philadelphia 100 list, and Internet Retailers Top 5000 list. He's also been recognized as a 40 under 40 by both Direct Marketing News and the Philadelphia Business Journal. For a 10-year period, Stroll had an annual growth rate of over 70%. The company became an $80 million professionally managed organization with more than 125 employees. Dan had a fascination with personal development products that began in college when he needed to quickly learn how to build and manage a business. He was able to self-fund the growth of Stroll through his own consistent commitment to business improvement and the ability to leverage sophisticated marketing uh, analytics and advanced e-commerce techniques. To quote Dan, he said, 
I realized the only way to succeed would be to leverage the few dollars at hand. I had access to several third-party testing and optimization tools. All I needed to do was to monitor and assure an ROI on every dollar invested so that I could ultimately optimize my results until I was successful. Analytics and optimization became my rallying cries, and we're going to talk about those analytics and optimization techniques today on the podcast. Nowadays, Dan is focused on his early education business, Mindfinity, and also mentors high-growth entrepreneurs in his spare time. Dan sold Stroll a few years back, and we're going to talk about that today on the show. On top of Dan's mindset, high-performance tips, and his new venture, Mindfinity. Dan, how you doing, man? Hey, thanks for having me on the podcast. Appreciate it. Good. Did I get uh, everything all right in your intro? Yeah, it's fine. Had a couple hundred, close to a couple hundred employees, but you know, I've been far less. <laughs> 150, 200, you know, yeah. <laughs> less, less is more. Let's yeah. So we met a few years back on an island in Croatia. And I don't know if you remember or not, but we were sitting, looking at, sitting on this dock, looking yeah. at these rubber duckies float around in this cove that we were hanging out in. And uh, you started asking me about my business and I started asking you about your business. And I was impressed. And that conversation actually led me to come to your talk um, that you did on that island. And um, one of the things I really remember that I still apply from that talk today was you were talking about being ruthless with your time. And I made a podcast episode just about that quote a couple of years ago, probably, um, because it kind of shifted. It didn't shift my mindset, but it just like enhanced what I was already practicing even more so, right? The being okay with being very ruthless with your time and how you spend it and not giving it away too much. So could you tell us to start off, what does being ruthless with your time mean to you? Well, it means a lot of things and it, it always keeps evolving. In fact, uh, this year I even fine tuned some things, but, uh, I'll tell you what it is and I'll tell you what it isn't. I mean, that's that's also important. So um, being ruthless just means like thinking of everything in terms of 80-20 terms. I mean, ultimately, like what are the most impactful things? I mean, forever, I've always asked myself, all right, what are the top few things that I need to get done today? I mean, among all the gazillions of stuff that's on my list. And then, you know, I've even gone further to refine that where it's like ranking the stuff and um, by what has the greatest impact, dollar impact, right? And so... Mm-hmm. It just means that that's one aspect. It's just the day-to-day management, having good time management hygiene, let's put it that way. I mean, some people talk about energy levels and all this, but I guess now that I, I cut out coffee like six months ago, and I feel like my energy is like at 100% all the time. There are like no highs or lows unless I don't sleep well. So at that point, it's more about just doing the right thing in the right time. And then on top of that, like liberally hiring services as you need, like have a housekeeper, have people that do stuff, all the maintenance stuff, never lift a finger. I mean, it's kind of like that. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I hate to say it that way, unless your wife asks you to, I mean, unless you absolutely really have to, but, uh-huh. uh, or you're being proactive on her behalf or something. But uh, no, I mean, in that sense, because then you're freeing up space for everything else. Um, also, one more thing is like, uh, you have a personal trainer that comes to the house every morning. It's nice, just nice to have somebody you just show up and they tell you what to do. You know, I've always told him like, you know, count, track, do everything because I don't want to use any of my willpower. Uh, I mean, obviously it's a habit now, but but that, that's kind of what I mean. I mean so there's, there's a lot of that. So I, I love that term. Did you say liberally? Higher services uh, as much as possible to do everything so you don't lift a finger. What's the most ridiculous thing that you've hired somebody for? And so you could make sure that all of your time and energy was invested in, in what you're really great at building, building businesses. Having a woman who stayed overnight from like 10 o'clock to six in the morning, every night when my, my, my second daughter was born, just shuttling her to my wife to breastfeed and back. Uh-huh. So that I did not have to get up and take the baby, uh, an evening doula. That's what it's called. It's the best investment ever. I mean, it costs like 25 grand for like two or three months, but it was um, like the best expense ever. I mean, because it was a, a radical departure from the first uh, daughter I had. So that one was uh, a great use of, of money and savings of time. Great for her, great for us. Weaned the baby off, basically being able to, not weaned off, but basically um, extended out how long how long our daughter could sleep until she was like able to sleep through the night for, for parents. That's a big deal. Like getting, yeah, through. it's a lot of work, right? Those first few months. 
yeah, with a baby, yeah, right? Yeah. So that that's where I would say splurge. I mean, generally, it just means spend money on people to help you over buying possessions. Number one. Okay. Like I would take, and now it's even different with homeschooling and having teachers and all kinds of people coming to the home and everything else. But I would use to me, it's like services can't even compete with material desires just because they free you up for your mind up just give you your space so from that that's kind of what i mean what about being ruthless with your time at work and you talked about like the 80 20 principle but also you mentioned like making sure you're spending your time on the right thing how are you figuring out what right thing to spend your time on yeah i mean that's something over the years um i guess it starts with you first need to figure out all right what are the most important areas in the business that you need to be world-class in first and foremost so that the people you're putting in the company really are helping you to be world-class in those areas because you don't have to be great at everything right mm -hmm. so then then eventually when you get to a point where you've got your role defined like what do you need to be great at to help the company move forward in your particular role and i mean there's different systems and philosophies out there but at the end of the day you have like a i think at some point in an eight-figure business you have um eight or nine figure you have an inside outside kind of person so that's like the ceo coo many different names integrator versus the visionary i mean call them whatever you want but the the key thing is when you know okay i'm, I'm the ceo i'm more out externally focused i mean strategy pr m a potentially finance some different elements there it's just being really clear on what those are and then still also keeping a view towards i think every entrepreneur has some superpower that mm -hmm they can never not use because it's just so valuable. I've kind of said that the CEO CMO combo or like a CTO COO combo is like a unicorn in the company to some degree when you have those two skill sets. Yeah. Um, so for me, I mean, I had that kind of CMO type of um, skill set and the CEO skill set. So I'd still use that in the company. So if it would be like, select things that were super high impact doing an optimization improvement or uh, potentially writing copy for something if i had to i mean still would, would get hands-on with that kind of work so it just comes down to mapping it back to what creates the greatest value i mean if you're working on the business instead of in it then the the on stuff is going to be super high value what's something that makes you aware of your you're spending too much time in the business like when you realize oh i'm I'm in the weeds of the business right now. I need to, I need to stop that. And I need to bring somebody in to take care of that. Yeah. I mean, I, I probably have a more different perspective on that just because I've, I've had a lot of people to tell what to like to help me in the, in, in the okay. past. So at very high levels, so I could kind of know certain things of how to hand them off and so forth. But I guess what it comes down to, I mean, the doing of stuff. I mean, if you're in there tinkering in the ad accounts all day or doing tech related stuff or customer service or any of these things that aren't like higher level needle, needle movers, then you're, you're in the weeds. I mean, right. if you're doing your own bookkeeping. If you're now it's one thing to do bookkeeping. It's another thing to strategically rearrange the PL in a certain way. That's going to give a better presentation of uh, a clear presentation of the financials or structuring uh, KPIs to initially set something up as opposed to going out and gathering them. Now you can't look, I mean, there is a reality. I mean, cause I've been, I've had a, a number of, startups i've had a large company you know and so there there are different points in time for different uh, levels that you can delegate at but uh but you have to be really clear when you're doing ten dollar an hour work or a hundred dollar an hour for work or whatever it is you just need to be clear that that's what it is if, if you're not aware of it then you're probably doing it yeah that's actually a good point like that's a good metric right there <laughs> i don't know how much this job is worth let me uh that's definitely not worth my time yeah it's a funny way to see it but yeah, I like that. So, so you started Stroll in your college dorm, right? And you went to the yeah. school in Maryland. Is that right? Maryland, yeah. Yeah, I'm fascinated with. I remember when I was in college, like I had these business ideas, but my business ideas were like, how can I get a food truck at the Missouri State Fair? you know, and make 10 to $20,000 in 10 days sort of thing. Right. Nice. Um, and I would map it out and create my own business plans and everything. Never went through with that business, but I'm fascinated. Like wh where did you come up with the idea in college to create something like Stroll? Yeah. So it, I mean, it, it pivoted into what became Stroll. I mean, I think it's really hard to start a business and have it be what you wanted it to be from day one. I mean, yeah. unless you 
started the business with some sort of client or something and then got more like them. I mean, that's maybe in the services phase. But uh, my dad lived in Europe. And so I went to go visit him. And I remember flying back one time and I saw there was this like text scanning pen in an in-flight magazine. And I was like, man, I had the idea to invent this thing. Basically, you could scan printed mm -hmm. text and it would convert it into computer usable text. So uh, you could just beam your notes, study notes or whatever to your computer. And, and so I was like, you know, I would know how to market this. I should... So I started thinking about it and it was a Swedish company and I happen to have a business professor who was Swedish. And so I basically said to that professor, hey, you know, I, I'd like to pitch this company. Would you like to fly with me to Sweden? <laughs> and, so, and so off we went. And so I pitched this company. Oh, wow. He was and, for it, right? He was. And, 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 yeah, basically said, hey, you know, I'd like to get some co-op funding. Here's the concept. We donated to the college campus libraries and then get access, free access to the mail system, send people into libraries to kind of demo it for themselves and then use direct marketing to, to, to close them and do it, do it online. And so they liked the idea. They said, Hey, I mean, they didn't give much like 10 grand or something, but uh -huh. it was something. And uh, that kind of started it off. So I started off at like two universities and then it was about to expand it to 20 and they decided cause it was working. I mean, we were getting sales online. And during that process, I mean, I had to figure out, you know, you didn't have the kind of tools you have today, like a Shopify site or all these other platforms that are out there. I mean, right. so um, had to figure the tech side out uh, and even, you know, HTML coding and all that stuff was like 2000 was, you know, still not the greatest. So figured that out, got online and ultimately uh, we, we ended up getting into, they, they decided to pull out of the U.S. market for whatever reason. So then we pivoted to professional development products of which one category was language learning. So that's mm -hmm. kind of where I found that. And then when I saw that product, I thought, wow, why don't we just focus on this? It's not positioned very well. And the rest is history. This was early 2000s, right? That was like 2001 when we started marketing the, the language learning product. So I was already out of school at that point. I graduated in 2000. So lived with my parents and, you know, I have all the I guess, quote unquote, traditional war stories with entrepreneurship and startup. But this was a bootstrap company, right? Like yeah, totally, totally bootstrapped. I fortunately, I, I was working for a software company uh, doing German technical translation of all things while I was in college. So mm. based on the income I made from that and then just like signing up for every, which you could do back then, signing up for like every single credit card you could possibly get. <laughs> I ended up graduating, uh, fortunately, zero dollars in debt, but like a hundred thousand dollars in like a credit like, card debt. <laughs> no, available potential, available potential. Okay. So, okay. So eventually, I did get in, get into like seventy grand of, of credit card debt. Ultimately, like twenty five k, just trying to make ends meet. By the point to where we actually had profitable sales, and then it was just like fifty k dumped into taking the company to the next level, and that that kind of carried the way. One of the things I read that made you successful is that you were, for lack of better words, ruthless about making sure that every dollar that you invested in advertising was profitable. And, you know, not everybody does that. Actually, I think a lot of people, a lot of companies will just dump money in advertising and just if it's profitable, that's awesome. If it's not burn cash, what's the next thing? So in those early days, what was what was your process of making sure that you're getting an ROI and all those, all the money that you're investing. Really, it was, it was just uh, complete measurement. I mean, because we, we tested all the time, we measured, you know, different advertising options and so forth. And uh, it really came down to, we just didn't have the money to make any mistakes. So it was just, <laughs> we leveraged our time. I mean, that's the one factor, right? I mean, mm -hmm. at some point in time, you're worth, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, right? So even if you're doing something for free on the side with your own money. I mean, you, you're kind of kidding yourself if it's free, right? Yeah. It's, uh, it's your time. I mean, you could be using that for other things or get paid for it. But if you have spare time, you know, it's your passion area. I mean, you know, you go for it. So there, cheap labor wasn't worth much. And uh, I wasn't worth much at that time. And basically just testing an optimization. Eventually, you know, I mean, when we would look back, I don't think, I mean, across over $100 million in ad spend, I don't think we ever lost more in total than maybe 200,000 bucks. Really? Wow. Yeah, just over the years and incrementally going up, because eventually, I mean, we're spending like 30 million plus on a year on media. And that's just the discipline. It was just the discipline of also the patience level, because now again, I mean, you could argue, hey, there's a lot of loss, a lot more lost in labor 
like mm -hmm. doing that testing, whatever. But I mean, not to count it that way. But but we definitely would have patience. It took us like two years to open up display advertising back in the day. Yeah, two years of just all right. We got one gain elsewhere, and then we revisited it and tried it again, and kept trying things. And eventually, then that unlocked like tens of millions of spend potential. So mm -hmm. there's just that patience level you have to have. Well, what is the, I mean, it's a lot of patience, right? But you, you've got to be scrutinizing every little option to the T to make sure like there's no flaws. If you're getting a hundred million return and lost 200,000 over, uh, what was the time period that you did? Well, that's that? like over, I don't know, 12, 13 years or okay. something like that. But keep in mind that, I mean, a test can be small. If you have a $5,000 test, Maybe you, it doesn't, it's rarely, I mean, really, unless you don't have a, an offer that's dialed in or very far from dialed in, it's really all or nothing. You're right. usually getting some type of learning, right? Were but, you scrutinizing each, like each option that you were going through or, or was this something that you taught to the team to make sure that, that they were thoroughly going through it and not making any mistakes? Or? Well, we hired for people that had analytical capability. I mean, okay. among other skill sets, but we would test for that and make sure that anybody brought into marketing, we had a very specific analytics test that, I don't know, for whatever reason, 80% of people would fail. It wasn't that complicated. It was literally, <laughs> but, no, it, but still 80% uh, uh -huh. of people that would apply would fail. And so that was like a baseline starting point. So we always made sure that we had people that were data driven. Yeah. And so you have to kind of build a culture. I mean, it can't be, it can't be a back office thing. It needs to be a front office thing. I mean, it has yeah. to be like, not, not just in the CEO corner or whatever. Well, rather it has to be in the CEO corner being spread out to everybody else in terms of like, here's what we're doing, here's what we're measuring. I mean, across other metrics in the business as well. So you kind of build a culture around that. And then people are constantly looking, you know, week to week at their numbers, they're measuring them. They're looking at their media plans. Uh, so you just basically build a culture around it. We interviewed, do you know who the Harmon brothers are? Yeah, yeah, they had yeah. the, uh, those like, uh, what's the pooper? Squap, squatty potty and poopery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we interviewed uh, one of the founders, Jeffrey Harmon, and, and he talked about, like, he's very analytical as well. You know, they're very analytical in the ads that they put out, but also the, the type of ads that they create. And to test potential employees, they would, I think you would give them like 2000 bucks, you know, once they made it through a couple of interviews, they would say they would take two or three people and say, okay, here's 2000 bucks, see what you can do with it. And then whichever one brought the biggest ROI back, then they knew, okay, this is the person that, that we want to hire. And that's, that's how they went through their process. I'm curious, like this test that you gave everybody that 80% of the people failed, like what sort of things are you questioning them on? Well, there was something simple. It was more like organizing different information into certain metrics, like things you would expect people to know, like how to calculate CPC, CPM, how to lay out certain information. It was pretty short, but, but it depends on the role. I mean, like when it came to uh, VP of finance type of hire, it was some serious like modeling. I mean, being able to model out the entire dynamics of the business in an elegant model. And we already knew how to do it. We already had this stuff, but it was just seeing like, could they... Um, could they show in a simple model like how AR, just how to forecast, including AR working off of like a, a marketing, we call it a marketing transfer sheet, like the forecast for the month or whatever to take that or forecast, let's say for a year and to take that and put it into the financials and do it in an elegant way. Mm -hmm. So interestingly enough, I mean, you saw, I saw stuff all over the board. It didn't matter how much people were paid, 100K a year or 500K a year. I mean, it was, that particular one was tough. I mean, only about... 20% were able to put something together that was even useful. So now again, that's testing for modeling chops. They had to have, they had to have the conceptual skills for that, but then there's other factors, right? I mean, in terms of like how they are as a strategic thinker and other things and so forth. So mm -hmm. there's always like more to the package than just like that one kind of talent. It, it always seems much more challenging. Well, it all, it's always much more challenging quite often to find those people, I think, from my experience, than one would think. But you mentioned like the importance of being patient and making sure not only you had the right people, but the right culture, but also the right tactics. And you were applying, you know, you were using the right advertising when it went out. That patience, is that something that's natural for you? Yeah, I guess, I guess it is. These days, too, when I think about a, a startup or a new business or I think about like if I'm mentoring someone on the side or something and, and let's say they have one type of 
let's say they've hired a bunch of people. They have 20 people working in the company and they never even established their values, never really used certain criteria to bring people in or hire them in a certain way. So there's some potential piece missing. I, I start to think, and man, this could be a one to two year change to now shift the culture and start to mm -hmm. hire in the next batch of people one way or another way. So when we start to get into like, or if I were buying a company, I'd be thinking about, okay, the culture change, it could be a two year time window. Mm -hmm. It's just gonna take time. Just like a startup, give yourself three years. I mean, maybe give yourself three years to break even, like have that kind of mindset. Just be willing to go into that project, not with like the wishful thinking, but just know there's gonna be twists and turns. Uh, if you don't want those twists and turns, just don't fucking do it. Just go buy a company. I mean, <laughs> plenty of people retiring. I mean, why, why take all the risk? Like, do something new and creative and innovative or just go for something that's kind of there and you can make a little better and make an econ income out without, without all the stress, right? So there's certain things you just have to be, know what you're getting into to know um, how much patience to have. It's long-term planning too, right? Like not not always going for the short term or the quick ROI or the quick, you know, return on your money. Um, but thinking about like, like I noticed a shift from my early days as an entrepreneur to like, there was a maturity shift that happened when I was no longer worried about making a few bucks just to keep the business alive to work, you know, to focus on what's going to be the best thing for the business five years down the road, 10 years down the road. Right. And, and I think when that shift happens, whether you start out with that or, you know, it happens 10 years into your career, then you're focused on all quality decisions that can keep the business surviving and growing over the next five, 10 years and so on and make it into a more successful company. Would you agree? Yeah, and I think, well, because you're also thinking about the strategic positioning of the business and everything mm -hmm. else. And then there's another level too, I think, on, on the personal side, which is maybe you want to do something that's helping kids that aren't born yet, right? So mm -hmm. like kids 50 years from now, how do you make an impact? How do you leave a legacy? Like what are the problems you can solve in the world that will uh, outlive you, right? But right. you actually can make a meaningful impact. I mean, that's why I'm still in the education space and really want to do something there. I mean, it's more just... Uh, how do you, yeah, just thinking bigger. I mean, there's, there's Elon Musk level thinking. <laughs> that's a level in itself, but hey, maybe that's one to aspire to. Again, it, it depends on your risk tolerance, right? I think it's the right kind of thinking. I mean, if you, it, or at least it's something that I think as you hit 40 plus, you start to think about more. Yeah. That's, that's what I experienced. That's what uh, some mentors of mine told me. Things shift, right? Things shift, priorities shift. You mentioned too, like working with, when you do some consulting with other companies, the values, like making sure they have the values right in their business or, you know, taking the year or two to get everything in alignment. So it makes the shift in the business that they need. What are those values that you look for or you make sure that are in the companies that you build yourself in order to have that foundation? Yeah. So uh, by values, I mean, typically it's five or six values. And a lot of times I'll do like two two to three descriptors adjectives whatever you want to call them each of the values just to, to sometimes it's easier when you have two points you know to, to define a line but basically values are the behaviors like what how do you create self-reinforcing behaviors that perpetuate a certain culture Mm -hmm. So it kind of makes it more automatic and everybody's constantly getting more cohesive if they're all embracing those values so it's, it's like the uh, programming within the team, essentially, like right. DNA there. So to me, that becomes really important. And then everybody always kind of gives it lip service. I mean, I think a lot of inexperienced entrepreneurs do, but it, when you start to magnify your teams and you have lots of people, and lots of people is relative. I mean, you have 20 people, 15, even there. If you have those values down, you can use them for screening, you can use them for motivation, you can use them for performance evaluations, you can use them as a lens that, um, unites the team and then the things that don't quite fall into values which some people just use as their values which doesn't make sense to me are things that i would call more beliefs mm -hmm. like you know we believe and you maybe have eight to twelve statements around that mm -hmm. so that also kind of like gives some more uh, context to what the culture is all about are there any like foundational pillars that you look for when you work with with clients key foundational pillars that you make sure they have in place you mean like for for you're talking about if I were going to help mentor a company and, and wanted to work with them. Well, one thing is, I, I, I guess the first thing I would look for is, you know, is, is the CEO coachable? 
Okay. I mean, how, how curious are they? I mean, are they, uh, how much are they trying to push themselves? But the reality mm-hmm. is that a lot of times it's evident in what they're doing. Because, I mean, I, I typically am not working with like higher seven figure or eight figure businesses. I mean, it's just uh, because you're dealing less, you're still dealing with a mindset issue, but Mm -hmm. it's not the same as like somebody getting to six figures or just getting to like seven figures. I mean, just Mm -hmm. crossing the million dollar mark. It's just different stage that they're at. But I'm I'm generally looking for, well, number one is just like, is somebody growing? Growing personally, but also even business-wise, just because if they're already in a turnaround situation, the problem already happened two years prior, probably. Okay. One or two years prior. I mean, you're just too, you're not too late. It just depends on if you have the patience, right? So in that particular case, I don't know that I have the patience anymore. <laughs> I've definitely done that, but I just prefer people that are like really fast, quick starts, but conscientious about taking action quickly and making moves. And yeah, a lot of times it comes down to mindset. I mean, there's a lot of, even just sometimes mentoring someone on just being willing to spend more money yeah spend more money on yourself pay yourself more why are you so poor and you're unhappy i mean just you got the money in the bank just pay yourself more like yeah. you know it's uh take more time off i mean, it sounds so simple but you know for lack of a better word we used to call it like the holocaust survivor mentality I mean, Maybe I could say that because I'm Jewish, but it's like you just get shell-shocked. And so you just, uh, you forget, like once you've reached this next stage, like how do you let go of certain views towards money, towards spending on talent, towards a lot of things and just be, you know, again, you have to be clear on your goals. It's not for everyone. I mean, you have to be clear on, is it a lifestyle business? You're building a business that somebody might want to buy both. You want to kind of sit sit as the the like the investor above who has the lifestyle, right? You just have to be clear on those kind of goals. But ultimately, I think that's what it comes down to. Well, the importance of being coachable in any aspect of life is absolutely huge. And I've worked with people as well that that sign up for our stuff and they're not coachable, you know. And we find that out. I don't know, half a month into the program and we're like, oh man, this guy, he's just not, you know, just wants to be so set in their ways. And, and I'm wondering, is, is there a time in your life you've ever realized that you weren't being coachable? I wasn't being coachable. I've realized times not, I wouldn't call it not coachable, but more like when you're younger, there are points where you can be, I guess these days they would call it imposter syndrome or that, that seems like extreme for me, but like Early on, I remember, but then, I don't know. I, I feel like I've always been coachable, but there have definitely been points where I, I remember coming out of college, I wanted to be taken seriously, right? You mm-hmm. know, this young guy, and I mean, everybody's older than me that I'm hiring and stuff. And I think I bought these like fake Dolce & Gabbana glasses that didn't have, <laughs> <laughs> didn't have like real lenses, right? Just to, just to feel a little older or something. Oh, man. Uh, and it's hilarious. But uh, I mean, you know, really, it's all the people that I hired at that time I mean, who were older. And then there's just more of the learning of through experience of just being a little too aggressive, like and not, let's say, uh, low emotional IQ in a given situation, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you make a couple of those mistakes with employees. I mean, it just happens. You learn and you grow and so forth. I mean, I feel like when people have pointed things out to me, I've always been open to, to change and learning and growing. And, and I mean, I think that never ends. I mean, if you want to be in a long-term relationship, I think that's, that's a key too. I mean, and maybe not to put it in an extreme way, not to allow yourself to be emasculated, but, but not to be like an idiot who's not listening to feedback when mm-hmm. you should be listening, right? And learning and growing, especially with kids, you know, which is a whole other level of growth and, and reflection and so forth. So one thing I realized that I liked about your mindset is I, I read this in the American business magazine and it talked about how you, you at the time when you were with stroll, how you viewed your largest competitor, Rosetta stone. And, um, I see Rosetta stone stuff everywhere on television, you know, in the airports all over the place. And, and your this quote I really liked. You said, "If I ever stopped to think about my so-called largest competitor, I would be paralyzed with fear." In the language learning business, most consumers know only one name. That's Rosetta Stone, the publicly traded thirty-thousand-pound gorilla of the industry. It advertises on radio, it appears on TV, walk through an airport, and you're bound to pass it in a kiosk. But here's a little secret: as the founder and CEO of Stroll, the company behind uh, Pimsleur Approach. 
the number two brand in the language learning business, I never think of Rosetta Stone as our competitor, and this surprises most people. Why and how could you not think of them as a competition? Well, I mean, I, I guess I just looked at it as we try to carve out our niche as being like the number one leader in audio-based language learning. Okay. So it was like trying to shift it a little bit because they were, you know, computer-based. It was uh, reading, you know, writing, refl- I mean, just a different methodology. Mm-hmm. So it was just trying to be unique within what we offer that was differentiated from what they did. At the same time, I mean, we ended up being about 75% of the size of their online business because they were doing a couple hundred million dollars, 250 million at the time. And uh, we became pretty formidable because we just focused on online. So it was just trying to think of it as like finding uh, white space, you know, where we could carve out our thing. They had their strengths. I mean, at some point, at one point we had their management team came up to visit us and we were, we were just chatting about stuff. And, and that's actually where it was interesting because at that point I realized all of us are just the same idiots sitting around <laughs> thinking about the same kind of business. And like, you know, we're, we have our own little machinations about who we are and, you know, demonizing each other or whatever it is. <laughs> and, and we're all just the same, you know, monkeys in a room just thinking about the same stuff. So it was kind of funny. Yeah. So it was, it was kind of cool meeting them in that sense. So, so finding those so-called like blue ocean niches in a mass market that people will want to buy from right got to be different in some sense i mean right i think the core thing in business i mean to be me too is it's just tough i mean uh, really only one time have i dabbled in that and uh that was a project maybe like three years ago helping a friend of mine who bought back his home security business and mm-hmm. by the time he bought it back it wasn't unique in the marketplace anymore mm. and so that's just really uphill battle. I mean, you're just in the, in the me too space and just trying to just eke by in terms of like messaging and acquiring customers and so forth. So I I just go back to like, whatever you're doing, try to make it unique in some way. What if somebody, you know, say they have a company they're doing well, you know, they're making profit, but they do have a lot of competitors and their product or service is very, very similar to uh, the other competitors out there. How would you work with somebody? What advice would you give to somebody to make that shift? Well, I guess the question is, is are there niches in the space where you could get more niche because it's general? Uh, If you're really niche, could you go more broad? If you're offering services, could you offer products? If you're offering products, could you offer services? Um, Could you wrap your product into something else to bundle it to be more unique? I mean, even just like take, let's take a mundane example. All right, you're uh, going head to head with somebody else who's got the same branded product on Amazon or something, or maybe you're like bidding on the same thing. I mean, can you bundle something else with yours to at least make it differentiated in some way? Mm-hmm. Right. So there's, and there can be paper premiums. There are paper premiums, meaning um, inexpensive info products or whatever you could bundle with something else. So there's always some way to create differentiation. I mean, you just have to go and think about who's the customer, what's the market, what could you be doing differently? Could you spin something in an entirely different way? And then if you can't do any of those, then leave. I mean, go do something. (laughs) Why work so hard? I mean, go do something unique in the world. These days, living in Latin America, living in Colombia, I mean, you know, or visiting some some place, you go by and it's like you look at all the stores and they're like, especially like tourist places, they're like 100% the same, like seven of them in a row. Yeah. Or like people- It's not just Latin America, man. It's the US, dude. It's all over. Yeah. Or, or like selling um, like the, the places that sell like pineapples in our region or something. I mean, like these stalls, they're all identical. I'm like, what the hell? I mean, you're just, I guess it's just a supply demand thing. All right. Like, you know, you're just waiting for the invisible hand to just give you a high five along the road or something. I don't know <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so true. I, I was reading, have you ever read the book Influence? Yeah, sure. So they talk about that. That's, I think, the opening story is that uh, in a tourist location in Phoenix, Arizona, yeah, they were selling all the turquoise stones that are popular there in that area. And um, one boss told the the manager to cut everything at half price while she was gone to see if they could sell their excess stock. 
and there was a typo or something in, in the email and the, the manager thought it's 2x, you know, she said 2x everything. And when the boss came home from the week away, uh, they had sold everything. And the reason why is because all of the people that were shopping there thought more expensive meant better quality, even though it's the same exact thing that is that the four other stores on the same street were selling and, and sold us. So that's like the, the law of, you know, finding the difference in your product and service that you can even if it is the same exact product and service, you just message it different. Yeah, I mean, I, I would also spin it around. Can you tell a more interesting story? Mm. I mean, if you had two pieces of artwork and the other one just like brought tears to your eyes, hearing about the backstory of what like led into it, I mean, that's the piece that'll sell. So it's, it's also having more context uh, around what that is. So I think, yeah, I mean, these are the, that's kind of like the highest level stuff. I mean, when you're thinking about um, how to position something with Mindfinity, I mean, we want to create a whole new category in education, which we call inventive IQ. So inventive IQ is the human capability to invent, solve, or innovate using a trained imagination. And mm -hmm. so uh, without getting all the intricacies of the business, the whole point of the business is like AI and automation are going to take away a lot of the best paying jobs over the next 10 years. And right. So, how do you help kids like get an edge now and also in the future? And so we're thinking deliberately about how do we create that niche within the education space? How do we build an ecosystem around that? How do we even get other competitors in the space potentially, you know, so that that actually we're not just a, a concept of one, you know, so it's, it's actually more, it's, it's more recognized and there are more avenues available for parents. Yeah. So it's the same, same kind of thing. I mean, how do you create something unique? And that sounds like it's going to be a big booming market over the next 20, 30, 40 years is, is getting your kids an edge over, over all the technology that's going to develop, making sure their brains are sharp or healthy are on point, aren't damaged too much from playing football or soccer or whatever they do as kids riding BMX bikes. But I think that, yeah, that, that's a big, exciting market that you guys are in. I was going to say, yeah, I, I just hope... Uh... <sighs> It'll just be interesting to see what happens over the next 10 years. I mean, they say there's like a billion jobs that'll disappear. So my hope is just, yeah, we just have to have, we just need to evolve. I mean, it's going to force, force a real evolution. I mean, you have to really think about, think really carefully about what, what um, skills and, and in particular non-academic skills you want your kids to have before they ever graduate school, right? Yeah. So, that stuff's all the stuff that's not taught in school. I mean, that's, that's really like my past has just been accelerated learning, like whether it was language learning or we ended up also selling uh, memory improvement, reading, speed reading, other types of just accelerated learning type of products as well. So that's all the stuff that should be taught to kids like much, much sooner. And be coachable on top of that. Yeah. Right. Because if yeah, we're... That, that comes to all the skills that comes to all the personal traits that you want them to have. Yeah. Uh, which is uh, definitely being open-minded, curious, all those things. Same stuff we want for entrepreneurs, effectively. For sure. One thing that you guys used at Stroll is um, a measurement tactic that I thought was really cool, contribution margin versus profit margin. And I thought this was uh, really interesting the way that you measured it. So do you mind defining both those and then tell us how you use them to, to grow Stroll? Yeah, sure. So, so profit margin, I typically think of it as EBITDA margin. So earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, amortization. I mean, basically, it's your bottom line. I mean, so, so contribution margin is what's left to... So you, you start with revenue, you take out returns, cancellations, that, that kind of thing. You get to net revenue. So you start with gross sales or, or revenue, whatever you want to call it, gross revenue. Mm -hmm. You end up with net revenue. Then you take out all your variable expenses to get to contribution margin. Variable expenses are, if you're selling a product, it's your cost of goods sold, it's the shipping cost to get something out the door, it's uh, credit card expenses, it's your media costs to do your online advertising. Uh, if you're licensing something, it's the royalty fee, uh, all that stuff. If you offer installment billing to people, it could be the bad debt level, like you know, some people are not gonna pay you. So mm -hmm. the default defaulted amount. So you take all that, you subtract it from your net revenue and you're left with contribution margin. So it's what's left to pay for your uh, overhead, for your operating expenses. Right. So for us, that was really important because a lot of companies are very top line focused, like, oh, we just need to keep growing revenue, growing revenue, but it might not be profitable revenue. So the more you 
train your team and focus your goals around contribution margin, I think then the, the more you're like at the number that really makes a difference. Because then from there, what else is there? There's overhead. Well, with overhead, it's like, what can you keep constant or slowly increase over time so that you can maximize your profitability if your contribution margin is growing? And you can do that with... Um, you can also employ better systems and better ways to create productivity among your existing team to get you know more with same or different types of strategies at that level. But if you just that's what we always found made us made us really successful. It's just we knew again going back to measurement, we knew how much contribution margin everything would drive. We also knew what the lifetime value was of our customers. And then by knowing that, you can spend outspend everybody on media because you know you're going to make the money back over time because you've measured it. And you've measured it correctly, it. yeah. Yeah. Have you ever, you ever thought about making a course? Because I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs, you could set, make the course and talk about your analyzation strategies, analytic strategies and, and sell it for a thousand bucks and then, and then not do as much coaching or maybe, maybe that is a step or stepping stone to a course like that. Because as you're describing this, I'm just thinking about all the people I know, all the, the people that I work with that, that if we had this in some sort of like you know, of course we could go back to and learn over and over again. Like it would, it would be valuable. Yeah. Well, the six X method, I mean, uh, you, you saw that presentation at, at, at the baby with bathwater events, you know, there, there's definitely more that could be done to dive deeper. And you'd probably then want to just help people. All right, here's a dashboard that would be useful in a business to look at. Here's what probably you could do an overview of what, what more sophisticated, um, uh, like a view between the intersection between marketing, accounting, and finance, and like mm -hmm. how those things work together in a direct response business, at least. Like, and also how that translates into cash flow. Like the marketing, marketing always has like a, a I always call it like a net present value view of the business. Think about lifetime value and the fundamentals of the business versus accounting, which is cash flow based. So, just ultimately, like the highest level is bridging those things and showing how, you know, the marketing plans and LTV and all that stuff translates in actual cash and forecasts and, and all that stuff is more mostly relevant if you're trying to scale pretty rapidly. And if you, if you just only growing five or 10%, it can be a lot more forgiving, like in, in needing to get so nitty gritty on a lot of this stuff. But yeah, as far as producing a course, I mean, Maybe at some point I, I just recorded and all that, but you know, the mentoring stuff is really just, <laughs> I, I enjoy doing it on the side just cause it, it, if I weren't in the startup world, I'd be buying businesses and, and growing them to the next level. So I just feel like it, it keeps me sharp, lets me work on like uh, frameworks and kind of crystallize different thoughts. But yeah, Hey, if, if you want to sell it, maybe I'd, I'd do a little work. <laughs> there and... <laughs> so you got to get the right guy to market it and sell it, right? The right yeah. I just, I'm not, you know, I, I, I just, I, I'd, I'd have fun teaching it or going into it, but ah, no bandwidth. I had that thought of that about that because like Andrew Warner does that with Mixergy in his podcast, right? Like a lot of his guests come on, they make a course, and then through his podcast, he sells the course for the guests that came on. So you uh, on his podcast? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. Maybe he's the guy to say, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, yeah, but that's not a that's not a bad business idea, I think though. Um gotta get somebody to build the courses, right? And then all the people to agree the courses. Uh I thought about like a book or something like that, like just something more to pay it forward. I mean mm -hmm. just, you know, the thing is you gotta be really uh it's it's hard to be halfway into something. Yeah. Because like it's 100%. one thing if you want to make something a business. Like yeah. I have a buddy of mine. I mean, he God. I mean, he's it's funny. He's like, oh, made another twenty thousand bucks this week, um, and he's just like spends like an hour, two hours trading options every week or something. And I've asked him. I was like, well, I mean, sounds like you're making decent money from that. Like, why don't you do this or that or whatever? And he's like, because it's my hobby. I don't want to turn it into a business. Yeah. So he's like, it would you know, it's what I do on the side just for fun or whatever, and obviously killer side income, but. Uh, you know, there's, there's some truth to that. Yeah. And you don't want to spread yourself too thin, right? Like, uh, start working on something that isn't going to give the return over the X amount of time that you put into it. Um, when you could be making more money, that's a, you know, I, th I think about that too, a lot, especially like with the cryptocurrency, um, you know, the way it's going and, and I have friends that are day trading in crypto and doing really well. And it's like, I could do that, but you know, all the years that I've put into the current business that we have, why why delve away from that because that's probably going to give me the best ORI for my time and money right now 
that same friend uh, who's like, yeah, I've been training in the office. Like, oh yeah, my mining operations are doing really freaking well. <laughs> 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 okay, man. Yeah, I mean, there it's, I worry though about the cryptocurrency when your yoga teacher is like, oh, you need to go, I'm telling you, you need to buy Bitcoin because it's going to go to 200,000. I mean, uh -huh. Elon Musk is in it and all this. You know, I know a lot of people that are in that, but you have to pick your battles. I mean, yeah. I've, I've taken a pass on, I mean, I've taken a pass on huge opportunities in the past just because I wanted to stay focused and whatnot. Yeah. And, you know, I can look back and be like, shit, I would have made 80 million from this one. I mean, it's a fact I and mean, I know what happened with it, but uh, whatever. I mean, you just got to be happy doing what you're doing and if you're working towards your purpose and fulfillment, I mean, yeah. it should be good enough. There will be always another opportunity that crosses your, you know, our plates. Like there's yeah, it's also be... like one of those things too, like, you know, the grass is always greener or, True. oh, that dude's got a bigger private jet than I do or whatever, whatever your <laughs> latest thing is you want to be thinking about. Right. So, yeah. I mean, there's, there's no end to it. Where do you personally find that contentment? Like where, what are, what are the things that you need to not say, okay, I need to give my time and energy into something else because I'm satisfied with what I'm working on? Well, I guess, uh, well, number one is just, well, I guess I kind of roll back because it starts with a mindset of, I know I was thinking about this the other day. I mean, I've always lived a life of freedom. I mean, however it happened, I never had a, ultimately never had a job, right? I mean, I've been an entrepreneur for 20, 20 plus years now. And I've always started with being able to have my, create my own rules. Like, okay, this is how much I want to work when I want to work, even if I'm working a lot, but I've chosen mm -hmm. to do it, right? So. So I think it starts with, and freedom is also one of my personal values. So it's just, I feel like, um, which I define a little bit. I talked about, I do the same thing for businesses I did for myself, just like some attributes, but independence and initiative, I guess, are kind of like two defining features of freedom. So I start with that, but then, then it comes down to like, if I'm doing something that feels meaningful, that's helping other people, as, as I've gotten older, I mean, you know, the whole business world and everything else is kind of simplified down to if you're offering value to others, you're going to get value back. I was reading something recently. It was interesting. It was talking about the concept of reciprocity in terms of either basically quid pro quo, there's paying it forward, hoping that somebody else will do it, and then just paying it forward, hoping that you'll get something back out of it. But, but in any case, I mean, more this like natural virtuosic circle of like reciprocity in nature and everything else. I mean, just it's all meant to kind of work cooperatively. Yeah. ultimately together. So yeah, I just think if you're, if you're delivering value to the world in some way, then that that's fulfilling. And then the other part is uh, just keeping your mind quiet. I mean, that goes to things like self-care, right? I mean, meditation. I've, I've been, I guess in the last, since like 2013 more so doing a lot more meditation. I mean, I met this Swami who was basically just taught meditation. I thought it was kind of cool and literally just focus on your third eye, no music, no nothing, just set a timer for an hour and that's it. Yeah. So, uh, so I try to do that actually every morning. So meditate you, for like an hour. How long have um, you been doing that for? Uh, a couple of years now. So it's been on and off, but probably solidly consistent. I mean, more in the last year. But the, the biggest thing is I just treat it like sleep time. I mean, okay. just add it because it's, it's uh, whatever you would have been sleeping, just treat it as that time. I mean, so I, I generally only need like six or seven hours. So I throw it in with that. Uh, so it's basically, you know, six plus that seven plus that whatever it is and then you get the greater efficiency during the day anyway so it's not a net not a net loss yeah from that standpoint plus you know there's there's a lot of other benefits but and then it's the other thing of just trying to exercise every day almost i did that i did that for a year and a half to just meditate with no sound whatsoever first thing in the morning for an hour um it was a great experience but uh i got bored of it i mean i got to the point where it was just like I was, I was getting, and I think it's different for everybody, right? I was getting more of an ROI on a 30 to 40 minute meditation than I was for the hour meditation for whatever reason. I don't know. Um, but I'll probably do it again. Like I have my, you know, if I don't have time, I have like a 20 minute one that I do that yeah. is with like music. That's more like through my self-guided internally, like through my mind or whatever. But, uh, the, I guess the thing is it's kind of weird because it, it like, I've just noticed like minute 50 to 60 is really where that sweet spot is. Like when you I, I noticed that too, get, yeah, get yeah. blitzed. I mean, it's really just like at the end, it's just, you see bright, bright white light and 
that's kind of of what it is. And then you're good to go for the day. I would hit like 40 to 50 and be really challenged with, you know, in between that 40 to 50 minute mark and then 50 to 60, it would just like, you're right. Sometimes 50 to 70, it would just be like very euphoric. Oh, that was really nice. Um, But I always, almost always had that wall at 40 to 50 minutes to go through. Yeah. And you know, that's, I call it the, uh, I forgot to set my timer moment. Uh huh. Like it's between 40 and 50. I start to worry. Did I? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Like what if if 70 (laughs) minutes has already passed and I'll be stuck now? Like, like it'll screw up my day or something. Right. So yeah, uh, you know, I just always have to like ignore that part. That's, that's what I've always wondered is, you know, you have before the call, before we started recording, we're talking, just talking about some general stuff and, yeah, I've got friends that try psychedelics and different things and so forth, but I, I've never heard them say, oh, well, before I do that, let me just even try to tolerate like meditating for like three hours and see what happens. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Like just even see if you could even get there. I mean, you'll have to push yourself like after your legs will give out. I mean, if you're not used to it, like, <laughs> uh, you probably can't get to an hour if you're, if you're not used to it. It'd probably take you some time to get your legs used to it, but then getting way past that, you know, I've sat down for a like two hour session, I mean, but then even that gets interesting. That's one thing I noticed. And that's, that's a big difference. And, and maybe it's something you, you can try, but mm-hmm. if you're around like a Swami, like a, a total guru, like somebody who's been meditating 30, 40 years, I mean, literally like they throw off heat. I mean, they, you can feel really? their heat coming off of you. Like, and it's just a radically different type of meditation experience. I had uh, this friend of ours now who's a Swami. I mean, he's actually lives in the States, but he comes to Columbia every year and uh, we hosted him in our home uh, last year. And I mean, it's like being on jacked up on caffeine all day, I mean, <laughs> just having him stay in your home. I mean, like literally you feel this like fried feeling the entire time, not a bad feeling, just like, you know, just uh, somehow it just, just makes you more sensitive. Just feel it. Well, it's the, the, you can feel the presence of somebody's the vibe that they give off, you know, like if a, a really bad person comes in the room, you can sense it, right? You, you come across somebody that you're like, uh, pretty sure this guy's murdered somebody or something, you know, or it's somebody that's really that sheds a lot of light and love into the world. Like you can sense that when they come into the room, you're just like, oh, this person has a really good vibe, but it's interesting. I don't know if I've ever been around anybody like that, that you mentioned, but you, were you meditating with that? What do you call it? Swami? Swami. 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 Swami, Swami did yeah. you meditate with him? I did. Yeah. So he would come so for a couple of days, like twice a day, mm-hmm. in the morning and the evening, meditate for an hour or two hours or something like that. And, uh, did you feel your meditations were different or deeper? Oh, way deeper. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's like when you're, that's the difference between seeing, um, let's say lamp white light and bright white light. Hmm. Okay, fair. Like literally, like I would just feel like there's a freaking like, <laughs> flashlight shining right through my brain. I mean, plus uh-huh. feel the heat, like just could feel the heat and energy, like just coming off the guy. I mean, it's just just unbelievable. That's cool. So, uh, that's that's neat. But I've heard that I heard that from somebody else. Uh, I was having dinner with somebody, and they were saying that they had had like a near death experience in their life. They were in this like. Prior to us meeting, we were at a conference. Uh, they were in the hotel room and they just felt this radical energy just all around. They didn't know what the hell was going on. And then looked out the window and the Dalai Lama was staying in the hotel. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow, so that's fascinating. There, there's something to that. I mean, some people, I think, somebody I think you know too. I mean, you'd never know, I mean, from the looks of it, but, you know, the guy can literally like spray with his energy and. Yeah, I felt people take like what, that before. Yeah, take whatever's in you out of you. I mean, this one business guy I know we both know without saying names, but so there's you know there's a lot of nonlinear stuff in this world. So that 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 side is interesting. For any listeners out there, that might be a good challenge. If if your go-to is psychedelics, uh, try meditating for four hours before you try a psychedelic uh, experience. Or I've always said, lock your room, lock, lock yourself in a room with no distractions for four hours and journal for those entire four hours and see the epiphanies and the inspiration that, that comes out from an experience like that. Um, 
not that the, that uh, psychedelics are, are a bad thing in any way because they do help a lot of people, but I think there are a lot of op- other options that people don't consider, and, and it's an easy go-to source sometimes. I think ultimately the feeling is more one of, there is that like, you know, college days, you know, taking ecstasy or whatever back in the day. I mean, it's actually not dissimilar. Yeah. Like the peak, peak state there and then being in a peak meditative state. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just absolutely. way better, right? You wake up and you're good to go and focused and <laughs> <laughs> able to function in the real world, you know, as opposed to being asleep or whatever. <laughs> Are there any other unorthodox type of high performance strategies you use or methods you use, Dan? I don't know. I mean, unorthodox. I mean, there's meditation, journaling in the morning, just being really deliberate about, uh, what's what's going to happen in my day having planned it for the week i mean just trying to create as much routine and structure even if it looks ridiculously boring mm-hmm. um around around everything so that i can be super creative in between right so yeah. so it's really it's also just trying to prioritize the most the things that you value a lot first like i'll already be done with meditating working out spending time with my kids before i even show up for work every day yeah so i've already knocked out like uh i've already won for the day right yeah. so then then the other thing is just being cognizant that i mean will you get ever more going back to this question of like how do you um be ruthless about your time will you ever get more than two or three hours of unbelievable high value time out of any given day mm. yeah you said that actually in your your presentation right you get two or three hours of yeah. high valuable time every day and you got to be ruthless with that right you got to make sure that your time is spent yeah, how do you make sure that counts? And I yeah. mean, there are some people that just take that to an extreme. I mean, they just, they're already at such a level, they only need to spend an hour a day doing anything work-related, right? It's true. But that's, that's the, the ultra extreme. So, <laughs> yeah. But it's not impossible. I think a lot more of us can achieve that. We just, it's not in our mental model. Um, you know what I mean? I think uh, our mental model is at least eight hours a day. If we're entrepreneurs are working hard more, 10, 12 hours a day, right? Probably more when you move to an investor level, I think. Uh, yeah. Because, I mean, even if you only counted, like, take my friend, even if we just said that that's what he did uh, with his, his options trading or whatever. I mean, if that's only like three, in total, three, four hours a week, it's not like, I mean, he doesn't need to work anyways. But, you know, if that were his work, that's really what we're talking about. I mean, yeah. if, if we consider that the high value time. Yeah. But then again, you have to overlay that with, you know, there's the... Uh, as entrepreneurs, there's uh, are we like the the merchants of Venice, like in, in the sense of just toiling, trading shit, selling whatever, or are we uh, building meaningful businesses, right? right? So that have that legacy element, that have that personal dimension, that have a mission dri- driven component to it. That there's something a little bit more. We're doing something better than than that that will create a greater impact. So that's where you have to weigh these things. I mean, just making money or, or trying to do something that's that's worthwhile. I mean, there's no right or wrong answer. I mean, I'm not, I'm not here to judge anybody or say do something one way or another. It's just more uh, what, what gives you more fulfillment, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's one of the best measurement tactics. Um, Dan, I think we're gonna wrap up there. Is there anything else that any last words or advice you'd like to leave the listeners with before we wrap things up? I guess if, if you want to build a course, go to Mixergy, right? I mean, I'm the- <laughs> uh, uh, good plug, it. good plug. Uh, no, maybe I, I'm not doing any of that. Maybe that's no, the best no, place no, to no, go no, right no, now. No, <laughs> you know, I guess, you know, we, 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 we talked about a lot of stuff. Bottom line is you have your show to help entrepreneurs get to the next level. You've got your masterminds trying to help and mentor people in business. And I guess I would just say, I think the the most important thing is just being super like in business. It's just being super clear about what differentiates you and then treating that like a fractal type of thing. What mm-hmm. differentiates the business? What differentiates like in the marketplace internally among the 20 things you could be doing, what are the three or four that you need to be like world-class in? And then among your people, like what are the couple attributes that they need to be world-class in within what they do. And it just keeps going and going and going. You personally, I mean, as an entrepreneur, if you know what your role is, like, again, what do you need to be world-class at? And then just go deep and master that kind of stuff. And I think the rest just takes care of itself. As long as you have a reasonable business model that can make money and you're helping people, I mean, it all kind of comes together. I love that. Actually, uh, I write that down in my 
my journal every week. I'm a world-class entrepreneur. I have a world-class podcast. That that phrase right there, world-class, what do you want to be world-class at? It, it It's a mindset shift. It's a powerful one. Um, I love it, man. I love, uh, thank you for sharing all the tips and tricks that you've shared with us today. I really do appreciate that. Um, if the listeners want to learn more about what you've got going on and where they can find you at, where's, where's the best place they can do that? Well, these days, uh, just go to myinfinity.com or, or go to LinkedIn. Look me up if, if, you, if you have any questions or something like that, or if you want to see what I'm up to. Cool. And you do some coaching and consulting for entrepreneurs, higher level entrepreneurs too as well, right? Yeah. Very limited. I mean, just don't have as much time to do it, but I do enjoy it a lot. So um, okay. that, that probably the easiest way to get in touch with me would just be go to, go to LinkedIn and ping me and just let me know you heard me on, on your podcast or, uh, or harass Chris and <laughs> <laughs> whatever you don't don't go to mixer G that's just <laughs> uh, thanks again Dan I really appreciate your time man it's been a blast learning from you and getting to hear all the tips and tricks and wisdom that you have thank you very much my friend listeners we're going to wrap up there thank you guys for tuning in once again and we'll see you on the next episode goodbye everybody Hey listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high-performance productivity coaching and our six, seven, and eight-figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.